0: Hey, welcome to Crateism. ism This is a podcast dedicated to the art of record collecting. My name is Fatima Chantel, and on the show, I'll be talking to DJs, record shop owners, and folks that are just plain passionate about wax. This first episode is with Sacramento's Matt Chong, who I've known for many years, but I actually was never fully aware of the time he spent working in radio in LA in the 90s. So he's got lots of classic wax, along with some interesting stories to go along with them. This interview ran a little longer than expected, so it's broken up into two parts. On part one, we talk about radio stations that were popping back in the day, KSFM in Sacramento, Cameo from the Bay, 92.3 The Beat in Los Angeles, College Radio, Ruthless Radio, which was a show hosted by the late Easy e what? We start off by discussing the variations of the police's synchronicity album artwork. I do mention 44 different covers, but I think it's really 36. So vinyl purists, please don't come for me. I know, I know. <laughs> and um, also just a heads up for those who are sensitive into sound like myself. Throughout this episode, we're really actually digging through his records so you may hear some rustling and some unwrapping of plastic and things of that nature in the background also i realized about six or seven minutes in that an hour or two just isn't enough time because there were so many dope records and uh we're definitely gonna have to do a second interview together anyway i really hope that you enjoy this episode and this new podcast Don't forget to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the very first episode of Crateism. My name is Fatima Chantel, and my very first guest is Matt Chong. What's up, Matt? Hey, hey. (laughs) And um, we're going through your record collection now, which is mind-blowing, but you're holding a copy of Synchronicity by The Police. And I was just wondering if you ever heard the story that there's 44 different versions of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So... This came out when I was probably like in sixth grade or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I remember um, hearing about that. And, you know, it's one of those things that kind of goes through your mind. And it passes through. I mean, back in the day, that was when I was in here in Sacramento before I moved to L.A. So heard about it. I think it was on Quadona Six or something like that. back. The, in the alternative,
0: day. Rock yeah, that alternative Rock
1: Station. Um, and then years later, uh, I was in L.A. And, um, you know. Pilling around Amoeba and this happened to pop up in the used bin. So I think I bought this for like three bucks. But yeah, it was definitely one of those ones I was really curious to find out like where in the whole gamut of versions this really fell into mm-hmm. i don't know maybe you could tell me more about that
0: um i don't know too much about it but i know i have three copies and there's just different artwork placement in each copy like pictures that are here will appear like on the right side mm. but i mean there's a rumor that there's like 40 something different versions and I, I do have three copies and they're all different
1: then you gotta collect them all then
0: yeah i'm like oh no that means i have more records to collect so
1: does this one look familiar of the ones you have
0: this i know that Sting with the skeleton is definitely on one of mine. This looks familiar to the guy with the eyes closed. But yeah, I'd have to like pull out my copies. But anyway, <laughs> how did you get into record collecting and into music?
1: Uh Music first and foremost, definitely as a kid. I mean, my cousin, I mean, I, I guess everyone's kind of into music as you, you hear music all throughout your life. But you don't really start listening to it until... At a certain point. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was uh, when my cousin used to pass me, my cousin John used to pass me these tapes, I mean, literal mixtapes of um, what we know as hip hop, right? Like it was. And the first thing he had was um, Survival of Melly Mel. Um, and then um, he handed me these tapes and it was like uh, Johnson Crew. And it was like, so it was kind of like that electro mm-hmm. kind of point in hip hop. Um, it was when Ice-T did Reckless. Um, everything kind of had that like high, like a higher BPM, more of like a syncopated beat, as opposed to like um, what we have now as, as like more of like soul samples and like slower BPMs. But it was um, really just the passing of music. And um, eventually at one point I realized that you could actually work in it but we'll probably get into that later but it was really just the idea of um you know for me it was hearing something that that was brand new to me it was kind of like when i first heard um i mean another big part of it was when i heard um herbie hancock Um, oh Rocket yeah and do Rocket on the Grammys I think that was like a pivotal point for almost any person especially DJs Mm -hmm. when they first you know saw The Scratch for the first time literally on TV Mm -hmm. um, DXT was doing that and it was um, it was an interesting point in time because we didn't have any reference point, so it was like you saw it once, and then you couldn't go back and and find that again. Hopefully, someone around you had it on vid- on videotape somewhere, right. where you happen to maybe catch another airing of it. But it mm-hmm. was during those times. I remember definitely Herbie Hancock on the Gram's being pivotal. Definitely when Graffiti Rock first aired on TV, um, because that was when B Boying was at a kind of an all time high, and I think uh, Ren DMC performed on it um and it was like new york city breakers and rock City crew so it was like all this early b-boy culture but on network television i think it was mm-hmm. on like Channel... american bandstand or yeah something like yeah that. totally that format and it mm-hmm. was like american bandstand format but it, like a bunch of kids from new york city mm-hmm. they're all from like the bronx but they're on it on a dance show just as you would have on american bandstand but mm-hmm. just built for a different audience
0: right and did you grow up in sacramento or la because i always considered you a sacramento person but Totally I mean, Sacramento. Like, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely spent all my formative years here, but really grew into myself in L.A. So I moved okay. to L.A. for probably about almost 10 years, maybe about eight years. Okay. Um, mid-90s.
0: Okay. And then you went out there for school?
1: Yeah. Um, so when I was living in Sacramento, I fell in love with radio at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was back when we could still catch KML from Sacramento. Mm-hmm. So at one point, I don't know if everyone remembers this, but if you're in Sacramento, you had a, a fairly limited selection of rating You still honestly do but back then you could tune into KML, which was like the You know the station in San Francisco and they had like all the Ill Mix show DJs they had mm-hmm. all the personalities They played all the songs you wanted to hear right. especially if you're into like urban music and hip-hop and R&B and all that good stuff but it was hearing that and then listening to guys like Kevin Nash, I don't know if that rings up there's a jock named Kevin Nash was Theo Mizuhara, which was Theo okay. at the Beat in LA. That's were guys that kind of were iconic during those radio times. Got me to think about like how I really like consuming and listening to this. How can I do that out here? So I remember interning at one to two point five. I did that for like a couple months. I didn't last very long. So I think <laughs> I think I was in the, the sales department or something like that. So I was the furthest thing removed from like programming. Right. And like even promotions or anything of like the culture of the station. I was a part of the mechanics of it. Um, but I was, that was the time. I remember I remember being like a young kid and like seeing Ebro there. Right. And seeing Ebro like in the studios and production, you know, recording promos and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it was way back. But yeah, I moved to LA because I wanted to pursue um, radio on a bigger scale. And moved down there, and I was interning in a matter of weeks. And where did you start? I started at The Beat. So it was uh, 92.3, KKBT. It was Cameo Sister Station in LA. And um, it was like one of two. So currently, like Power 106 um, was the main competitor. And I think down there now you have real ninety two point three.
0: I honestly hardly ever listen to the radio in yeah. LA. Oh my god, because it's a different, different time, you know.
1: Absolutely. So so now that's so now ninety two point three the beat or ninety two point three is back on. Okay. As far as the frequency relative to, you know, urban the urban format. But it's it's kind of ironic now because big boy who is the mainstay at power is now on ninety two point three. Oh okay. So it's kinda like it's it's kinda funny to see him on those that that frequency now with him being such, you know, a mainstay and icon on Power 106, mm. When I was down there at least.
0: So what was the format when you started in radio out there? Oh it was I mean what like you know was it soul
1: pure hip-hop and r&b it okay. was uh it was definitely an interesting time because we're talking 96 okay. 96 or so so it was best way to start is that i always felt that music dictates everything in pop culture
0: mm-hmm. yes.
1: so it's not tv it's not film it's not athletes it's music music dictates um your your language you know mm-hmm. it dictates like your regional slang it dictates Oddly enough, your 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 style of fashion. So like during that time, it was a really interesting time because that was when the urban culture was like the paramount culture in pop culture. So that was when like for some reason everyone had baggy clothes. Even like my dad had baggy clothes. You know what I mean? Like, Like it was it was all about everything baggy. Everything had sort of like. A weird hip-hop translation like if you looked on tv like all of the advertising advertisements by big brands all had this air of like urban music Mm -hmm. so you could really just see how influential that that format of music was and and but cool in the sense that that was just the beginning of it i mean i think we know i think now it's it still continues to be the dominant force in culture popular culture at this point but interesting to see that it started really making its way into the mainstream i think during those times
0: so like what Songs were popular at that time when you first got into. Oh radio. man, it was
1: a, it was a, it was definitely like the beginnings when I first moved to LA. It was I remember buying the Chronic when I was in, lived in Sacramento, yes. so it was the Chronic was here. When I moved down there, it was right after Warren G and a bunch of other people came out because I remember Dove Shack being really popular. And then us, when I moved to LA and Long Beach specifically, living there, mm-hmm. trying to find Kings Park and all these different things they're referencing. Records. VIP
0: so, records. Yeah, totally. <laughs>
1: totally went by VIP records. Like, I mean, all those things they talked about um, in the songs, I was just seeking because the kid from Sacramento, you know, you're, you realize, whoa, that's a real thing. And I can actually go see it.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: it and it kind of experienced what I heard on a record. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that answered your question.
0: Well, oh yeah, I was just asking about like what records were hot at the time okay. when you went into radio. Um, it
1: was definitely um, during the time when West Coast music was really starting to bubble. Mm-hmm. But it was also um, during a time when, like you know, Bad Boy Records was you know in the midst of their swing. I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was probably right around the era of when Biggie was really releasing a ton of records. Um, it was you know. Craig Mack. I mean, I mean, Craig was actually a little bit before that. R.I.P. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think definitely it was a coastal thing. So you saw most of the impact from what I remember coming from basically New York, L.A. Mm-hmm. But then locally and regionally, we, we, we still had, you know, like all the, the Bay Area regional records um, and groups still doing it. But it was very regional. Like we didn't have the resources, I think, for awareness to spread beyond your neighborhoods mm-hmm. unless you were in L.A. or New York
0: okay. or, in, or Atlanta. So in that period in the mid-90s, Bay Area stuff, like Soul Submission and stuff, was it pretty big out there or?
1: You know, it, it was, but I feel like um, Souls and like Hiro, the, the, the whole collective was was really more amongst like the heads. Mm-hmm. It was all real, real hip hop heads, but definitely, um, I feel like definitely it wasn't considered like a novelty. It was not still considered underground quite yet. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that during that time, there really wasn't an underground. It was really just hip-hop. And I feel like hip-hop really didn't take its underground approach, at least for me personally, until maybe like, I don't know, maybe like 97, 98. Because I was also, as I grew, an understanding of it. Because I think coming from Sacramento, I knew about everything I read about and everything I saw on TV. And then you go down there and you start to see it in a more visceral fashion. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, you went down there and I remember going to... um God, there was a cafe down there in in LA. I don't know if it was good earth or something but it was where Free freestyle fellowship used to perform
0: okay
1: so you used to see all these like interesting things happening in front of you and it all kind of starts clicking and when you're down there you know you start seeing groups like that that are that have been out there rocking in the, in the community for years kind of like how we have went like in sacramento i always consider the sacramento performative years of hip-hop being like the cuff or righteous movement you know mm-hmm. even like live mannequins mm-hmm. neighborhood watch like all those collectives of people alumni everyone that was like really out here kind of um doing things as a culture and not even honestly for mainstream appeal. They were just doing things because they had a community of people that all kind of supported it and kind of made this world revolve. You didn't even really need mainstream appeal at all. You just did it because you loved it. You know, it was, it was, it was even before, I mean, you had an avenue like social media to celebrate yourself. Right. You know, it was kind of like, you're just literally doing it for the love and for maybe the 50 to a few hundred people that you're rocking in front of at a show. Other than that, the reach was really limited by you know your resource and back then it was college radio mixed shows or seeing someone live
0: so the first station you interned at in la you said was 92.3 yeah yeah the beat yes okay and so what was the the atmosphere like were people coming through the studio like you know artists
1: oh yeah almost everyone under the sun um when i first got down there it was it was a location off Highland. So um, it was in this weird little off-street off Highland. It was on Yucca Street. It's around right around the corner from like a little um, little liquor store. And the the place it was, I think, this odd building. It used to be apparently a restaurant mm-hmm. way back in the day. And I think it was supposed to be the last location. It was the restaurant where James Dean had his last meal. Oh. Before he passed away or something like that. Okay. So weird, very interesting history. But the radio station was really cool because it felt kind of like... Kind of like what you saw on a radio station characterized as in movies, maybe in the 90s, um, where it wasn't in like a big corporate building. Mm -hmm. Um, It was in like a blocked, it was in a gated parking lot. And um, right before I got there, that was right when, um, I think that was right after Easy e passed. And Easy used to host a show on the beat. Really? Like every week. Okay. So he had ruthless radio. That's right. It was ruthless what? radio, and so he was in there every week. So coming from Sacramento, this is bugged out to me because yeah. I'm talking to my coworkers and stuff, and they're just like, "Oh yeah, like you know, I used to, I'm, I'm here on the weekends all the time. Like I used to help Easy out with the show every week." And coming from Sac,
0: <laughs> that's bugged
1: out. like right. You were in the studio with Easy from NWA, and you're just mm-hmm. thinking about these things because of how regionally far we were from it. But mm-hmm. from someone in LA. That's someone that's local to them. Right. So it kind of, it's interesting how it puts things in context for you. What may seem huge and large in our life, to us being a few hundred miles away, to someone in LA, it could have been someone that is like a local or a neighborhood icon that is just someone they're very familiar with and mm-hmm. not really so far from reach. But yeah, to answer your question, a lot of people came through. Um, pretty much everyone. I mean, anyone you can imagine that was working um, a single or an album project, was through the station. So we, we definitely had access to a lot of interesting things, especially during that time, like all of us that were in, in interns and aspiring to be on air, we all had like our college shows. Mm-hmm. So we used to use that time whenever we saw artists to get drops oh, for our okay. college shows. Uh-huh. So I, um, like our college show had the illest, Drops from like the Roots exhibit. We had like a little intro verse <laughs> from Common. Like it was so cool just because you had access. to
0: these Was th- I mean? Was that were you guys supposed to be doing that? So you were like at ninety two through the beat and Common or someone came through and you would you pull them aside and be like, Hey, can you do a drop for my radio? Totally, Jones?
1: totally. We, we were not supposed to do that at all. Um, in fact, we got the ones from Exhibit and Common, and, and it was Exhibit Common and, and The Roots, and mm-hmm. it was Black Thought. It was at a, a concert we hosted at at Big Bear in L.A. It was like a promo event where we gave like you know listeners tickets to skiing or whatnot. We drove mm-hmm. a bus up there, and these happened to be the artists that were rocking. I was huge fans of them. I happened to have my little recorder on me, <laughs> and like they were all waiting on the side, waiting to go on, and all of them were so cool just because That's I'm just tiny. like, this, you know young kid wet behind the ears is coming to asking you for drops and they mm-hmm. were like not only just giving you drops but they were kicking little verses
0: oh that kind damn. of fit your show into it so uh-huh.
1: yeah it was a fun time you definitely got to meet a lot of people
0: do you still have any of those drops
1: i do on minidiscs oh okay yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> all right do you like buying new records if so you should listen to my other podcast the vinyl roundup it's a monthly show where i give you a rundown of new releases on wax available on apple podcasts or wherever you choose to listen and hey while we're at it check out my other other podcast the vocab it's just a show where i kind of hang out and talk shit with friends also available on apple podcasts or wherever you choose to listen so how long were you at 92.3 probably five or six years i want to say okay
1: um yeah, during that time, pretty much it was, I, I want to say I interned of that for about maybe a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, during that time, it was it was pretty much like the goal was just to get hired. Right. So, you know, we st- I stuck with it way beyond my, my semester's credit. I didn't even get credit for the last, I probably worked illegally, honestly,
0: Damn. for like
1: a year just because, you know, I just wanted to keep my foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, you know, I commuted from Long Beach every day to be at the station um you know obviously you're you're literally paying to intern because you're paying for gas and mm-hmm. transport to get out there but it was worth it because um you it literally showed me that you know if you knew what doors to knock on mm-hmm. and who to talk to you could almost have access anywhere so it made, made just made you know it was empowering i guess because it kind of made you feel like anything was possible
0: is that where you got a lot of these records i mean is it mainly mm-hmm. from 92.3 or you've you know other radio
1: stations. I would say actually a lot after. Um, I would say definitely some um, because when I was at the radio station, I, w- I was in, in the I started on the street team. So we were okay. basically at events doing you know event activations and on the streets, you know doing collins and stuff like that. So we had access to promo stuff. I would say a little bit of it. I'd say the. A lot of this, you'll see like a lot of Def Jam product in here is because Mm -hmm. um, that's where I interned for a couple years and I assisted like in their mix show department with Leilani, woman in Leilani's shoe, and also Martha Reynolds. And in the West Coast offices, they were located right on top of the Hustler Hustler store.
0: Oh, good. Right on sunset.
1: Um, (laughs) Super interesting time, too, because that was definitely during like, I mean, you saw, we just saw a ton of big records come out. So being an intern there and my, you know, literally, the, the the people I was assisting were the ones that were um, calling on mix show DJs to get radio spins. So before digital distribution, it was an intern like me that took records and put them in a little jiffy pack and sent out doubles to every single DJ that was on our list. So it was just, it was cool because it, it really familiarized you know me with like what DJs were where. So we got to know with what guys are where from. New York to San Diego to Sacramento. But half the stuff is really Def Jam stuff that was in their record room. Right. That pretty much they're just like, go ahead and take, take whatever yeah. you want, you know? Mm-hmm. And then most of them were records that were like projects that were working at the time. But a lot of the stuff, you know, we were finding that were way before that.
0: Like LL Cool J, yeah, like types. LL Cool J okay.
1: era. Um, I was finding stuff from like I think Payday back in the Payday oh. days. Um, what was the hit?
0: Wait, the label Payday the label or Payday. the okay? I was yeah. like I think there was a group called Payday. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay, and um, it was just it was just a a cool access to like an archive of music, and mm-hmm. then uh, I'd say probably a bulk of it though was when I was at Hits Magazine.
0: Okay, and,
1: and, and Hits is. Um, an interesting one because Hits was like the one of three major trade pubs in the record business at the time. It's kind of like documented like the, the, the happenings between radio and records. Okay. So if there was like um, new projects coming out or interesting trends happening in sales or artists, the magazine report on it. Or And the same thing went for records like, I mean, radio. So if people were getting hired and fired and moved around, developments, radio stations changing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the magazine covered it. But it also served as a promotional arm because it utilized its contacts within record, the radio business to drive airplay for records that basically the magazine was paid to, to market. So it was during this time when, like, pretty much every single label was would basically sent us product because we were very fortunate to get onto the DJ lists. Mm-hmm. So pretty much. Um, you know, every label had a couple different mailing lists. Some were like club and street DJs and a lot of them were mix show DJs. So we happened to just get on them and it was literally every day, you know, someone would walk up to you with like this big old crate of like <laughs> stuff for delivery and you know, you spend like an hour just going through packages over packages and packages and a lot of it was garbage. But what I kept, what you're seeing here is probably about a fourth of what I kept okay. over the past 20 years.
0: So when you're, you know, working at HITS or at a radio station or Def Jam, who are you mailing the records out to? Other radio stations?
1: Totally. Um, okay. It was other radio stations. We always had this list. So when I first started at HITS, it was really in, in the, the urban department and this, under Gary Jackson. And he was uh, um, mainly focusing on like um, the urban format radio stations, mm-hmm. um, urban adult contemporaries or urban AC. So back then there was a lot of like... Um, a lot of R and a lot of soul records, and when I came in, it was funny because I I, I kind of brought this hip hop thing just because I was that's what I was really into. Mm-hmm. So I started to like. He allowed me to review a record every every um, month. After mm-hmm. a while, so I used to write these reviews, and eventually I started reviewing like Slum Village and uh-huh. like you know all these and then, and then all these guys that were kind of touching on hip hop, but don't but their projects really weren't like Kareem Riggins uh-huh. and stuff like that. So that was a start, and then eventually I moved into the rap and mix show department. And my immediate boss was um, Nasty Ness, Ness Rodriguez, who is some Mix-a-Lots original okay. DJ. And then after that department closed, I reported to a guy named Ricky Lee Mensch, who actually Ricky Lee, rest in peace. He was a DJ, actually, that was on air in Sacramento for okay. some time. I wanted 2.5. I think he went by Ricky Lee. And um, Ricky grew to prominence in the industry because he was the first guy to understand... Really, the value of a DJ and their knowledge of not only of of music within their own region, in terms of what was bubbling in the streets and in the club and on the radio, but also the DJ was the main, really, the main tool to be able to break records in a market. Mm-hmm. because in radio you figure like if you're trying to get back in the day i don't know if it still works this way but if you're a label you know and you're trying to get your music on a station you go see the pd you're the music director you have all these music meetings and hopefully that your, your music gets maybe tested and then eventually gets thrown into regular rotation back then you got all this regular rotation stuff but then also on the side if you're an urban station you had mix show djs so now so now you have this, these other guys that were honestly had a better ear mm-hmm. because, don't get me wrong, there were a ton of, I think, PDs that were so in tune with what was happening on the streets, but you had these mix-show DJs that were really in it because these guys are, are rocking clubs, they're rocking events, their ears are to the streets, they're hearing stuff before anyone else does. So um, he was the first guy to really mobilize DJs on a national level and get people to jump on these conference calls. And it was these conference calls that were... were were pretty cool because um, when I first got on him, there would basically be like a hundred DJs on a party line <laughs> and it would run roll call, but it was like people I'd read about. Like it was Flex. It okay. was like all the hot ninety seven guys, enough. You know, it was like Clue and then it was but it was and it was like guys from our region. It was like the Rick Lees in in, in San Francisco. You know, um, Jose Melendez, I remember like DJ Tosh from Sacramento being on it. So it was like this whole collective of DJs that were there. Mm. And through them, I feel like that's that's where at least I got most of the records from. Okay. Was because it was it was a, it was was the being able to be in those departments and then finally getting on these DJ lists. Mm-hmm. And then always knowing that you got everything that came out from a label. And like, that was the coolest thing back then. Because, I mean, in the music business, don't get it twisted. Like, you didn't make a lot of money mm-hmm. unless you were literally like, you know, usually a decision maker. But I always kind of joked around like, you're either making $8 an hour or you're making 80 Rand a month.
0: Damn. Usually,
1: you know what I mean? And, mm. and, and unfortunately for me, I was at the lower end of that food chain. Mm-hmm. So for me, the payment was music. Right. And this is what I basically held on to.
0: So um, I know there's a lot of stories with, behind all these records. We were talking about Tim Dog earlier, Buck Compton. I think that was his only hit. I yes. remember he had another song, Step to Me. Yes. But other than that, is there a story behind this album at all or just memories? You know, it, it was
1: honestly... Um, a pretty interesting record because if i remember correctly yes i see this on the box
0: the box the video jukebox yeah
1: yeah so i used to see it on the box <laughs> and it was before i even knew what it was before i really even understood like the regionality within hip-hop like like i knew that it had a kind of a different sound but for me hip-hop was always like a new york thing mm-hmm. so when i saw this And I saw the video, it definitely caught my attention for sure. And um, I mean, it was definitely just, this is something I think I bought, I think I bought you somewhere just because I knew like at one point I had to have it and when Uh it materialized in front of me, I just just picked it up.
0: You weren't bothered at all that he was dissing California? (laughs) No, 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 not at all.
1: (laughs) Not at all. You know, you know, I mean, um, I think that was definitely during a time when like, there wasn't really any divide between the regions at all. Mm-hmm. I think I think hip hop at that point was just such a thing that was like I think all of us that were into it were just so happy that it was there, mm-hmm. you know, and that like we actually had access to it. Now, I mean, coming from when we only had access like literally my first recordings of, of hip hop music came from recording it off of a TV, mm-hmm. like like sitting a boombox in front of it and trying to record it. Right. So just being able to have access to this stuff, I thought, was always just really. I don't know, really, really something that we should not take for granted. So that's why I always, whenever I found stuff, I just bought it Mm -hmm. because I knew at one point I'm going to regret it if I didn't.
0: Do you remember where you bought it? Like what the hot stores were? Did you buy it in LA or?
1: This, um, I definitely bought it in LA. I think this I ended up buying at Amoeba, but um, for me, the hot store was Fat Beats.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: It was was Fat Beats straight up. Back when, I know their last location was on Melrose. I want to say their location that I first visited was on Western. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was really cool because at that time that was like when I was doing college radio and you know when you're in college radio you're kind of like it's all about the underground man it's (laughs) all about the underground you know like fuck the mainstream so I was all about all this indie hip hop that I heard that just sounded different than like this really highly produced stuff that we're seeing because this was also during the time when like you know Bad Boy was out you had um, I mean definitely like records like The Chronic that were already setting like a high standard for Sonics Mm -hmm. so you had a high production value and then you had this other side of hip hop that reminded you of like what you first like what I first felt when I heard like 36 Chambers so something that was like raw kind of dirty like dirty drums and Mm kind of sounded really dark to me that was kind of like that underground sound I fell in love with and and it was Fat Beats Fat Beats is where it was at like you go get a Fat Beats and you could look at the wall and back then if it was indie honestly I would say 70% 70 of the time it was probably something that was pretty good because right. I feel like back then, if you had the resource to go out there and record and have your shit pressed mm-hmm. and then distributed, I mean, you probably had something that was really worth sharing. I feel like now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great stuff, but I feel like the access to sometimes distributing music has really clogged the space with too much music. But that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But um, during this time, it was dope because you could go to Fat Pete's and you would see um, Repmatic work in there working there yeah, working there okay you'd see babu working there oh, okay so it was just i mean again geeked out
0: mm-hmm.
1: i'll go there you know and just see these people that i would i would idolize mm-hmm. you know and then and then you, you get to know them and, and you're just like wow like these guys are just everyday dudes right. everyday dudes but that have been fixtures locally for so long that people that were in the scene in la were like, yeah that's his bab so that's his right
0: damn i never got to go there
1: yeah sure. great store great yeah. store and it's super small definitely something that i wish i feel like now they could probably make a comeback
0: i've been thinking that too i wish they would i really wish they would
1: yeah i mean they had the new york location back, mm-hmm. i remember started back in that i think that was when evil d worked in the new, in the new york location she so had all the beat miners. i mean that, i mean think about that right yeah. like you had the beat miners working out there and you had the beat junkies working on the, the west, west coast Co- like, oh, that's just some shit. Yeah.
0: damn that's crazy hey do you like buying new records? If so, you should listen to my other podcast, The Vinyl Roundup. It's a monthly show where I give you a rundown of new releases on wax, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to listen. And hey, while we're at it, check out my other, other podcast, The Vocab. It's just a show where I kind of hang out and talk shit with friends. Also available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to to listen okay speaking of the beat miners um i'm looking at some black moon yes um we were talking earlier about the logo and uh all the remixes any any memories
1: you know um the horns literally like the horns i mean when any of these records came in i feel like um like i got you open Mm -hmm. um you know these all just kind of for me represented an era of new york hip-hop that was really about that groove that I think a lot of artists still to this day really can't match. Right. Because I feel like back then it was kinda of like what you had with um like they say Rakim established his rhyme patterns because he used to listen to jazz musicians and he would try to emulate like their phrasing with his voice. Mm. So I feel like this era was kinda of like that era of guys like being able to create like have this cadence to have this swing to it that was obviously i mean they're obviously doing on a drum machine but it felt like it was organic like it was coming off a drum like a drum set mm-hmm. because it just i don't know it had more of like an organic feel to it, it didn't feel so mechanical but yeah i, I mean anything like og duck down you know old school nervous records i mean i love all this stuff i, I think i have mad lion around here somewhere too
0: oh yeah take it easy yes <laughs> Nervous did house too, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I never—I don't know—I was never a really big house person, so I never really got into that stuff.
1: That was that was an interesting thing too, like to think about because I think house um, music—I'm pretty detached from it too, honestly. It's only been until recently like I've started to really like open my mind to it. But you see uh, so many parallels within like house music and hip hop, and I mean you look at like Roots in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and you look at like a lot of producers. I guess uh, back in the day, a lot of early producers—you know—maybe that's why there was a connection between electro hip-hop and hip-hop because if you listen to that that cadence Mm -hmm. it all kind of has like a similar kind of pace to house right and even like i think no id said in a couple interviews how he's like if i wasn't doing these records i he was like the only thing i want i want to make is house music
0: really yeah yeah interesting so i think
1: there's a connection i just haven't figured it out
0: yeah i know i've been trying to get more into it now just for historical reasons mm-hmm. but yeah i'm still working on it <laughs> there's some funky stuff i think i think
1: a lot of it is just really appealing because you can feel kind of like whether it's ties to like afro-cuban music mm-hmm. right you know what i mean it has like that that kind of like two four beat it's not like a four four it feels like a it's, it's like a one two one two right and then usually it has like musical components that are kind of jazzy mm-hmm. um and, and phrasing that is more akin to soul music than right. like Looping patterns, you actually have melodic lines Mm -hmm. in a lot of house music, and that's probably why it appeals to me.
0: Yeah, I feel like in the 90s, there was some really good crossover house music like Delight Mm. and stuff like that kind of stuff. I did get into, but yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. And all hip
1: hop roots, remember, Delight, remember, remember, what was the DJ's name?
0: Oh, uh, I can't remember the Japanese, right? The Japanese, but I remember we had like the little yeah, that's right, that's right. Oh, I can't remember his name. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come to me later. But yeah, that stuff was good. Yeah, really good. Um, Bismarcky, Just a Friend, which is a classic. Oh, yeah. Sing along on Cold Chillin' Records. Mm-hmm. Any memories? I feel like DJs still play this song. Like, every generation knows this song. Anthem.
1: Yeah. Total anthem. I feel like, to me, it's this song. For some reason, this song and Akinyele Put It In Your Mouth. Oh, yeah. For some reason, it's kind of like the... It has a similar vibe to me just because... <laughs> It's the same thing where you can like you're saying like if you're DJing you can you can you can cut it uh-huh. and then everyone knows the chorus right. just like put it in your mouth. I feel like I always hear it like in the same context.
0: Okay, you were just talking about the Stevie Wonder compilation earlier. It's a four LP set. Yeah, pretty much every era of Stevie Wonder. Yes. Do you own any other Stevie Wonder on wax? I do.
1: Okay. Um,
0: quite a bit of it. Yeah. And it's do, like what era of Stevie Wonder?
1: You know, all over, honestly. Um, okay. I definitely got into his music, I would say, definitely as a kid. But I really didn't... It was kind of like as a kid because you hear it everywhere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then as I got older, it was when I started hearing it, like, in context to things. Like, I would hear... Um, I mean, honestly, I would hear I would hear it a lot, like, at parties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from the old folks playing it. Yeah. And then it was actually... I started to actually buy it, though, when... Um, was it Stretch and Barbito did the Wonder... The Stevie Wonder
0: compilation. Yeah, they were doing like yeah. the, the parties. Oh yeah, the parties. So too. it was all
1: the, all those parties, and then I think that's what kind of got me onto a, like a little bit of a buying kick for it. Mm-hmm. So that's when I, I started just anytime I found Stevie Wonder records, I was just buying them. Right. You know, especially because I I mean, they were, if I was finding them at Amoeba, I was like, why not?
0: Mm-hmm. Why not?
1: Why not add to it, add to the collection? Musical genius. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> Happy birthday to you happy birthday to you happy birthday <laughs> stevie wonder musical genius uh, i thought this would be a good stopping point thank you so much for listening to part one of the very first episode of Ism with my special guest matt chong part two is coming very very soon Hope you enjoyed it. While you're at it, do me a favor, go ahead and rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts because that's how we get people to listen to the show and visibility for the show. Really appreciate that. Also, I am looking for more people to interview for the show. I don't care how small or how big your record collection is. Well, I mean, you can't have like one or two records, you know what I'm saying? But Even if you're a new collector, I want to talk to you. Um, So if you're in Los Angeles, or the greater Los Angeles area, um, you know what, or if you're in Sacramento, I'm in Sac pretty often, or maybe even the Bay. I do head back there every now and then. Let me know, would love to talk to you about your collection and your passion for buying wax. I mean, at this point, I guess the best way to get in touch with me is via Instagram, Uh, you can find me at Fatima Chantel Chantel's with a C DM me and I will try and get back to you as soon as I can okay again thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast until the next episode